Amen. Let's go home. <clears throat> well, good morning, everyone. Good to see you this morning. I suppose I have to just begin by saying this. Next year. I mean, what was this thing last night? How many of you watched that? You know what I'm talking about? What was that? You know what that was? That was an example of what happens in our lives when we don't grab sin. You thought this was about football, didn't you? Everything is about what God is doing. So when you saw that and they lost, we lost, remember, sin is slippery. So we have to have the glue of God's word all over our hands so we can put our hands on it and stop it in its tracks. Amen? That is not the sermon for this morning, but it just had to be said. So you understand what that was really all about last night. Even Keith is saying hallelujah this morning. Let me just ask the guys in the back. You have that up? I have to see it though. It's not up. It's not working. The time clock is not working. I don't have a watch on. So is it working? Okay, good. Thank you. It's for me to see. Well, let's open our Bibles this morning. Finally, we're there, huh? First Peter chapter one, verses three through five. How many of you have been experiencing just a lot of trials and difficulties in your life of whatever nature? I mean, are we experiencing an increase in these things or do you find they're decreasing? Which one do you find? Increasing. I mean, it's as if maybe tomorrow it will be better. And then tomorrow not only deals with what is wrong today, but it brings five new ones. And then the next one, there's six or seven, and then continue. This thing is proliferating. It's getting out of hand. Trials and tribulations and difficulties and circumstances. Sufferings of various types and sizes. I, I don't know whether we have had more experiences of illness in the church these days than other days per capita. I don't know that. But I know that there are just a lot of the members of this congregation who are experiencing significant physical difficulties. Financial stress. Relational strains, even to the breaking of relationships. You see, I think what we have learned, if we've not only learned it, I think we're very blind to what's going on. Life is filled with trials, uncertainties, difficulties, dangers, and disasters. Would you agree with me? Yesterday, what is this, 22-year-old young man in Tulsa, Oklahoma, goes out and shoots and kills six people? 
Arkansas, wherever, it doesn't matter. <laughs> Tucson, Arizona. How many of you think that you have a guarantee not to suffer, not to experience a trial, and to be here tomorrow? Those people, those six people, just went shopping. We're going down to Target. We're going to Walmart. We're going to whatever. And they never came home. Someone's mama never came home. Someone's daddy, brother, son never came home. What do we say? What do we say to ourselves? What do we say to one another? What do we say to our neighbors? How do we handle this? Well, in, in, in a like manner, this was the condition, the atmosphere, if you would, of the congregation to whom Peter is writing as aliens and exiles, using those terms to indicate that you're not living in a friendly place. Don't put your roots here. You're rooting in the wrong place. And so his letter is filled with exhortation and opportunity to teach us how we are to live as believers in this kind of a setting. And not only how I am to live, but how I am to respond to you and how you are to respond to me in these circumstances. What do we say to one another? How do we help one another? Fathers, we share your word this morning. Father, show us clearly, we are living in enemy territory. And we are not going to find friendship from the world, nor fulfillment, nor satisfaction. It won't happen. And Father, when we think we are getting it from the world, there is a payment called death at the end of it. Father, show us this morning that the only satisfaction and fulfillment success is knowing you. Fortify us, prepare us, strengthen us, do everything necessary. So as we walk out into that mean, malevolent world, we can walk out as those who will overcome all of it and live successfully in your name. Jesus' name, Father, we pray. Amen. Each one of us who have been born into the kingdom of God, each one of us who have been born into the kingdom of God are walking a, is walking a path of salvation in the midst of trials. Every one of us has a path. And we don't mean there are many paths to God, but you have a path of life on which God has set you for the accomplishment of his purpose, specific for your for your life and for his purpose. But you see, the path is in the midst of all this worldly clutter, this forest. The path is not even and wide and clear and illumined. But the path we walk in this world is dark and dangerous and filled all over the place with crevices 
and holes and opportunities to fall into it. Things hiding in the bushes ready to pounce at us. But you see, this is the path that we're called to walk on. Jesus said in John 16, in this world, you will have tribulation. Don't you love the promises of Jesus? You will have tribulation. And what is the danger of tribulation? What's the danger? What's the difficulty? The danger and the difficulty, essentially, is not that it's uncomfortable and it hurts us and we don't like it and it's a problem. The real depth of the danger is this, that in the midst of this stuff, we often find ourselves being tempted to to question the strength and direction of God. And even maybe, are you still with me along this path? Because if you were with me, why is this happening? How could this be occurring? I'm a child of God. I deserve more. You see, the, the proclamation of the gospel that tells you, come to Jesus and God will bless you and give you good things and joy and happiness is not the proclamation that the Bible tells us. It says, come to Jesus so you can be saved from the wrath of God because of your sin. Then in the midst of that, and as a result of that, God will do his work. But you see, we evaluate God so often on the basis, not only what is occurring in our lives, but what we understand him to be doing for us through it all. Very dangerous. It's a very dangerous thing. And so First Peter addresses these kinds and other kinds of issues. So let's read together. First Peter 1, verses 3 to 5. <clears throat> And the apostle saying to the suffering church, he's saying to us today through the Holy Spirit is saying to us today, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. Revealed in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. How are we to walk? How are we to survive? But mostly, mostly, how are we who are called by God to be his people live in these kinds of times in such a way as to show that God is awesome and astonishing. How are we going to do that? Well, Peter tells us in the first several words and gives us the very foundation of how to do that. And what does he say? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is the very foundation of the path that God has created in our hearts by the Spirit, in our souls, that will keep us successfully glorifying Him on the path of life? What is that foundation? Blessed be God. Blessed be God. Praise, thanksgiving, 
gratitude. Why does it begin with praise and, and blessing? It's the word eulogize. Because you see, this sets forth the entire issue that God, the reason that God has saved us, that we should be a people to the praise of his name. Why praise? Why? Because first and primarily and really over all and through it all, God is worthy. God is worthy. He's worthy of all of our praise, notwithstanding any circumstance. He's worthy of all of our praise continually, no matter what is happening to us. He's always worthy. And church, that we would get this bottom line issue settled in our hearts this morning. That no matter what happens, no matter how it happens, how often it happens, I will be a man or a woman who will praise God in and through it all. I will be that kind of a person. I am going to be a person who worships God and be like Job in Job 19. Though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. Why are you being overcome by your trials and not overcoming your trials? Is because you haven't started in the place where you need to begin. God is worthy. Not because you get this or didn't get that or this is happening or whatever. He's worthy because intrinsically in himself he's worthy of all of our praise. And we experience that worth by what he does in our lives. Is he worthy to you of praise? You see, God uses our worship, our praise, as a means of protecting and strengthening us in our trials. Nehemiah 8.10, they had just rebuilt the wall of Jerusalem, which had been torn down by the Babylonians 150 years prior. And Nehemiah 8.10 says, do not be grieved. Don't be overcome by the circumstances. Don't be grieved. Why? Because the joy of the Lord is is our strength. You see, church, when trials begin to come, throw open your arms. It's not easy. It's hard. It's crazy in the natural. Throw open your arms and say, come on, because when you come, I'm going to grab you and enclose you with the joy of God and with the praise and worship of a mighty God who is greater than all of my trials. Rather than, like that. Stand up. Face them. But face them in the praise and the glory of a God who is working all things to the glory and the praise of his name. Psalm 35, 9. David says this, My soul will rejoice in the Lord, exalting in his salvation. He didn't say, I'm going to try to praise God this morning. The moment you try, you will fail. Students in my class years ago, when they said they were going to try to study, I knew they were going to make bad grades on the test, Craig. Because trying, they fail. So do not try to do this. Do it. Do not try. Do it. Never say, I'm trying. Say, I will do it. The Bible never tells us, why don't you try it out? No. It says, do it. 
Why? Because I had the Holy Spirit in me. Talked about the power of the Holy Spirit this morning. I don't try anything anymore. I either do or don't do. Are you in the same category? You find yourself either you do or you don't do. Well, let's stop don't doing and let's do. You see, Peter now describes having given this blessing to God. He begins now to describe the path that God has given to us on our journey through his world of tribulation. It's the path of God's mercy. What is this path called? This path of eternal life, this path of salvation. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his... What is the adjective? I'm sorry, what is the adjective before mercy? Great, astonishing mercy. Not just mercy. See, Paul and Peter and these men can't talk about mercy without embellishing it with adjectives. According to his great mercy. You see, trials can tempt us to despair and question God's goodness. You've ever been there? I wonder why God would... I wonder if God is ever going to... That's where we live, isn't it, in these things? Don't you hear yourself? Am I the only one who thinks this way? But rather than giving in to those temptations, the Apostle Peter begins to share with us the most basic issue about our relationship with God. It's mercy. It's mercy. You see, when you're not getting a fair deal on earth, right? When you're not getting the fair deal on earth, don't go murmuring. Sit down and ask God, why was he so merciful to you to forgive your sin and caused it to be put on the back of Jesus who was beaten, whipped, put on the cross and died, suffering the wrath of God. When the world doesn't treat you fairly, ask God why he did such a merciful work. And if that does not begin to raise you up out of the quagmire of self-delusion and self-pity, you probably are not saved. No. And you need to go to God to ask about your salvation. Because you see, we don't spend enough time with God just contemplating the enormity, the astonishment of his mercy to us. It's not astonishing to us anymore. It's too common. Sit for a while and remember this, that just one sin, one time, condemn you to hell forever. Just one. And yet all of that, God has placed in his son that you could have eternal life. Mercy, mercy. What an astonishing God. What does God's mercy look like? What does it look like? Peter continues in verse 3. He has said, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy, now he begins to unpack mercy. Mercy about what? 
When did I get me? How did I? Why? Who has caused you to be born again? Oh, 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 yeah, yeah, I'm born again. Yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian. Yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) Too much glibness. Yes. (laughs) If you knew that your child had been killed in Afghanistan or Vietnam or someplace in order to protect us, how would you? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, I know the soldiers out there. Yeah, yeah, that's okay. You'd have a problem with that because it hasn't understood the solemnity and the depth of the provision this young man or woman has made so you could have freedom. See, these are solemn and deep and grand issues. That Peter is presenting to the church to bring stability and solidity to them and strength to them. Why can I walk this path no matter what is happening? Because God has caused us to be born again. We who deserved eternal punishment because of our sin have received eternal mercy in the cross of Christ. And if that doesn't shake your cage and cause you to give you an occasion to say, praise God, thank you, Lord, blessed be God, nothing will. We've been born again. See, one of the difficulties is that we hear these terms and these phrases and these explanations so often we take them for granted. It's a huge danger. Let me encourage you to regularly... Take your word and sit before this God of ours. And as you read these basic issues that God has accomplished in our life through Christ, that you ask the Holy Spirit, would you cause my heart to be overwhelmed with who you are? That God, this holy, transcendent, majestic God of glory would in any way consider us to be born again. This is astonishing to me. It should be astonishing to you. He's an astonishing God. You see, this, this, this Bible is about an astonishing God who astonishes us because of who he is by what he does in us. And hopefully we're growing in astonishment, in wonder. What does it mean to be born again? Colossians 2.13 says, in mercy. In mercy. Every time Paul talks, well, maybe not every time, but almost every time Paul talks about these issues of what God has done through the cross, there's mercy around there. Paul doesn't want you to hear this without hearing the word mercy and grace and compassion and loving kindness. 
What does it mean to be born again? In mercy, God has sent his son to die for our sin so that we could be forgiven. Colossians 2.13, having forgiven us all our trespasses. I remember reading that in my Bible years ago, 1974. And I remember seeing that word all. It jumped out at the, off the page because, you see, I thought in those days that certainly God has forgiven me of the sin that I had committed, but certainly I have to worry about how I'm going to live for the rest of my life to deal with the sins that I have not yet committed. What am I about those? You ever worried about what God's going to do for your sin today and tomorrow? He's going to do the same thing with them as he did with the sins that you did yesterday. Nail them to the cross. And friends, when God nails something to the cross, no hand of man or Satan or dominion or any combination thereof can take it out of the cross. It's there. Jesus put it to death. Never to be resurrected as far as judgment and condemnation against me and against you forever. It's gone. Having forgiven us how many sins? I can't hear you. All our sin. Moment of inception when you were born and conceived in sin to the moment you take your last breath. All of it. Thanks be to God. What an astonishing God this is. Peter's laying the foundation of how to walk in stability and strength and according to the will of God and for the purposes and the power and the glory of God in the world. And he's saying, God has caused you by mercy to be born again. Get your feet settled in the concrete of God as you walk through the mush of the world. As a result, the Spirit of God moves upon our sinful heart. When Jesus has died, then the Spirit comes in Ezekiel 36. And inside of us, when we begin to hear the preaching of the cross, when we begin to hear the specificity of our sin and how our sin, whether it's one or any combination, our sin, my sin, was sin. And it was lawlessness and repudiation and rejection Against a holy and good God. Causing me to be under the wrath of an eternal God. Who must, because he's a God of love, condemn sin. See, because when you are loving someone, you must react violently against that which is hurting that someone. And the Holy Spirit changes us he convicts us and he saves us how many of us remember what ephesians 2 8 says for by grace we have been saved through faith and in case you didn't get what that meant and this is not of your own this grace and faith work but it's god's gift to us you see we've not only been born again we've not only been forgiven But we've been forgiven to a living hope. To a living hope. A vibrant and growing hope. 
one that increases in God's power to face and overcome their trials. Is your hope living? Are you experiencing the development, the maturity, the growing up of your hope? Or is it static? If it's static, it's not living. And God has saved us to a living hope. And so if we have a static or a regressive hope, there's something seriously wrong. He's not talking about a living hope just for those who are preachers and who are weird anyway and like to study the word. Every believer has been born again into a living hope. Why does Peter call it a living hope? Because you see, the hope of the world is dread and dead. Come on. What hope does the world have? 50, 60, 80 years, they give you a plaque, they put a statue up, they stick you in some beautiful mausoleum with all kind of pretty words on it. An eternity under the wrath of God. We have a living hope. Ours is a living, breathing, vibrant hope. And Peter's telling them that, look, there are two purposes in your suffering. This thing is being given to you with two distinct opposite purposes. The sufferings that you are experiencing... The enemy has the purpose of destroying your faith. Question God, undermine, weaken. But God has in the sufferings the purpose of building us up in this most holy faith. How many of us really, really want to be greater in Christ than we are today? We must Embrace, expect suffering as one of God's primary means. I want patience today, now. I don't want to wait for it. And so I ask for patience and all of a sudden, tomorrow, everything goes wrong. And I ask God, what is the matter? I ask for patience, Lord, and what is it that you're doing? He says, I'm, I'm trying to give it to you, you know. <clears throat> Lord, I want to love you more. Then all of a sudden, things begin to cave in all around me. And what happened? And what is happening here? I want to love you more. I'm trying to show you that this stuff you have in the world and all around you is not enough to love. I'm trying to extricate your mind, your affections, your eyes from this world and place it on me. You asked me to do it. This is what I'm doing. Aren't we funny people? You see, the world's hope is dead and dread, but the believer's hope is alive. Powerful enough to sustain us through the path that we're walking to the very end. Do you believe that? In your life, with your trial, whatever it is, whatever comes to your mind at this moment, that thing in your life... Do you believe that God is in it in a living and vibrant way, producing in you, using it, as he elicits from you praise and worship and a remembrance that I have been born again into a living hope? I'm a child of God in the midst of this. And in the midst of this, God is good.
is that's what's happening. If it isn't, then do it. Stop whining, complaining. I mean, my wife will tell you, I never complain. <clears throat> She's doing this, uh-uh-uh. Complaining is such an evil thing. So evil. So evil. But you see, what is the power of this hope? It's a living hope. Well, living hope has to have some kind of thing that keeps it going, generates it. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has, according to his great mercy, what? Caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What's the power of the hope? Where's the essence and the vibrancy, the majesty of the hope? It's not hope I'm going to get a better job, hope the stock market doesn't go down, and hope that whatever. It's the hope in one man who has gone to the grave with my sin has risen from the grave and is now at the right hand of God Almighty, living forever. My hope is a living hope. Your hope is a living hope only because we have a living Savior in whom is our hope. He is my hope. Is he yours? Oh, yeah, brother. Yeah, 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 brother. Well, then tomorrow when your world caves in, Or when my world caves in, my wife would be very good to remind me of this. Remember what you said yesterday. (laughs) We have a living hope. Why? Because we have a living Savior. Listen to this. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 22. But now, may I repeat that word for you? When? When? Now. Not tomorrow, not the next day, not 10 years from now. But now. But now is Christ risen from the dead. Hallelujah, church. Everybody should be screaming at this moment. But now is Christ risen from the dead. Yes, and the saints won yesterday. We've been yelling. But now is Christ risen from the dead. Is God worth our blessing and screaming and yelling? Yes. Let us not be quiet under these issues. Let us yell it out. Christ is risen from the dead. And because he's risen, I'm risen with him. You see, you get a deal where your mama is dying of cancer and she goes in there and they operate on her and they come back and say, there ain't no more cancer. You're not going to say, thank you. You're going to say, unless you were hoping for your mama's inheritance. We're not astonished with God. This should shake our world. But now is Christ risen from the dead. If he is risen and I live in him and he in me, 
and I'm going through these problems or whatever. What am I concerned about? But now is Christ risen from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. For as by a man came death, remember Adam. Genesis 3, 6, he ate. By also a man has come the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. What trial, what suffering, what difficulty, what relational strain, what financial predicament, what disease can separate us from this Christ of ours? What? Give me the answer. Nothing. You see what Peter's doing? He's concreting their spiritual path. He's telling them what God has done, the indicatives. Building strength and stability, fortitude in them. Knowing that what they are experiencing ain't nothing yet. You think it's bad today, wait until tomorrow morning. We've already said it's not getting better every day, it's getting a little worse. So that reminds me of the old saying. It's better in here than it is out there. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. It simply is. You see, our trials, yes, and our sufferings are real. And they are hurtful. I don't mean to pretend they are not real and they are not hurtful. And they do produce in us feelings of fear and devastation. They do. But... We have been saved from the worst trial that ever could come upon a person. The wrath of God. You think these trials are something? They're nothing compared to the trial that we were under before Jesus saved us by his spirit. And we have a hope having been given to us that is alive forevermore. You experience a trial, a suffering, a difficulty, an attack, or whatever it is. That's bad. I don't like it. That hurt. But Satan, that ain't nothing compared to what I could have had that Jesus saved me from. So do your best because you will never be good enough. Because Jesus will always be greater. Come on, speak to yourself. Is the trial of your faith worse than the eternal wrath of God upon you? Anybody would take this deal? No more trials and difficulties, just a lovely, wonderful life of the next 60, 80, 100 years. But when you die, you're going to hell. Who would take the deal? Peter's laying the foundation. Verse 4, Peter gives the specifics of this hope. This is a living hope. It's a hope to what? What, 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 uh, To an inheritance. To an inheritance. Ephesians 1.11. In him, in Christ. In Christ. Being born again. Christians, believers. Believers. Forgiven ones in Christ. 
We have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of God who works all things according to the counsel of his will. An inheritance. The night that Jesus was betrayed, you remember? All the difficulties and the problems that these disciples were beginning to have. Seeing Jesus beginning to come under the weight of the cross as he's eating this great covenant meal with them. And he says in John 14, he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. You trust in God, trust also in me. For in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. He says, I'm going away. But what? I'm going away, but what? I'm coming back. That where I am, you may be also. Why? Why is he telling them that? Because he's building their hope in him and in his work. Not allowing them to settle upon the circumstances of life to determine hope and future. I'm coming back. That where I am, there you may be also. You see, this inheritance, he continues in verse 4. He gives us three adjectives, then he gives us a verb. First, it's an imperishable How many of you ladies know that the fruit and the vegetables are not imperishable? You leave them out in the sun for two or three days, it's difficult to eat them. It rots. This inheritance is not rotting. It's imperishable. It won't wear out. It's undefiled. It's it's free of the pollution of sin. I have it living in me, this inheritance. It's not contaminated with sin it's not fading away it's always going to maintain its luster and its beauty Peter says when you look at the world it's contaminated it's fading it's defiled that's what you get in the world But he says, you have an inheritance, and inheritance is that which is given to us as a result of a death, the death of Jesus. Inheritance, eternal life. Do you believe this? Where is this inheritance? Where is this inheritance? Where? Kept in heaven for you. You know where the inheritance is? It is in the heavenly vault of God. My inheritance is locked down in God's vault in heaven. Nobody can touch it. Nobody. There is no more secure place than the place where God rules and reigns in majestic beauty without any sin or opposition. This is where my inheritance is. This is where your inheritance is. So when the world is attacking what we consider as our earthly inheritance, that means you shouldn't take any, you know, work toward a goal in life and, and have, you know, ability to retire. No. 
But we don't want to put our hope in that. Our living hope is in an inheritance. That is in heaven. You see, it's kept in heaven for you. The word you is plural. This is a personal and corporate inheritance. Now, whether you like it or not, the person sitting next to you, if he or she is a believer and you don't like that person, I haven't talked to that person, maybe sitting next to you in a chair in heaven one day. Now, can you imagine? Think about some of these believers that you have some difficulties. They're going to be there with you. It's a corporate inheritance. <clears throat> some of the husbands and wives are looking at one another. You see, Peter has described what God has done to keep his people safe in these trials. Did you notice the word I just used, that little preposition? Billy, did you just say, keep us safe in these trials? What did I just say? In. I didn't say from. I said what? In, not from. In, not from. In, not from. I am kept safe in the trials. Why? Well, you're a pastor. You're good looking and you're well educated and you can play basketball. <laughs> Do better than he can, that's for sure. <laughs> and that ain't saying much about either one of us. <laughs> You know why? Been born again to a living hope through Jesus Christ from the dead. I have an inheritance that's being kept for me, unfading, undefiled. It's not passing away. It's God's work. That's why. When the trials of this world try to tell me anything different in any of those categories whatsoever, I need to rise up and look at that trial and remember these verses and memorize these three verses and quote them to the face of the trial and in the face of Satan himself. Verse 5, now Peter transitions to address that activity of their walk along this path of the world. He says, you are being guarded by God's power through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. You see, the path is dangerous. You're going to get hurt. You're going to get disappointed. You're going to cry real tears. No one denies that. But my walk as a believer on this path is guarded, guarded by someone. This word guarded has two aspects. It has the aspect of guarded from escaping. God is not going to allow me to escape the path. And I'm also guarded from these attacks accomplishing their intent. I didn't say protected from any attacks, but from the attacks accomplishing their demonic intent, but guaranteed and guarded that the attacks will accomplish God's intent. I'm guarded. He says, when you walk in this world, you're exiles and you're aliens. 
He says, you're being guarded. Why am I being guarded, God? Because you have been born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to receive an inheritance undefiled, unfading, uncorruptible. That's why I'm guarded. And believe me, I, Peter Davidson, need a whole lot of guarding. And so do you. You see, God's work in us is not a unilateral work. We are being guarded, but by God's power, yes. What power? We already said it. The power that raised up Jesus from the dead. Is there any greater power that has been expressed and demonstrated to us? This power that God exercised. In taking his son and raising him from the dead, giving him an immortal body. The power of that was greater, I think, if we can do it this way, than the power it took to create all creation. The power of God. That's the power that guards me, that guards you. But you see, it's not a unilateral power. It's not a guarding that it's just God, God, God only, God only, and none of me, all of God. It's not an automatic thing. Do you see when you look at that verse 5? We're being guarded by God's power. What is the next word? Through. What? What does it say? Look at your Bibles. We're we're looking at the Bible today. Verse 5, right? 1 Peter 3. I'm sorry, 1 Peter 1, verse 5. We're being guarded by whom? By God, what power? His power that raised up Jesus from the dead. How are we being guarded? How are we being guarded, church? Well, God's just guarding me. He's just guarding me. He won't let me be. No, there is a means through which God is guarding me. What is it? Through faith. Through faith. You see, there's a great danger in our lives that if we think that this work of God, which has started at our being born again, which, of course, was in the cross, but before the foundation of the world, is something that God is doing, and I'm just kind of coasting, we have missed the whole thing. And you may be coasting down a dead-end street. It's through faith. Remember in Exodus 3.8? Remember the burning bush? Moses is standing there, hearing the voice of the almighty creator himself. And the Lord God, Yahweh himself, says to Moses, I am going to deliver my people. You can imagine Moses saying, thank God you're going to do it. Whoo, that's good. Go do it. I'm with you, God. I'm going to rah-rah you. I'm going to watch and sit here and let you do the whole thing. Then verse 10 comes up. I'm going to use you, Moses. Don't you remember Moses? I can't talk. I mean, I don't know. You remember? Did you see the movie? God is going to deliver his people. Period. Finish. And God is going to use Moses as his instrument. Good. Finish. Decided. How do the two come together? The answer is in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. 
Paul says, work out your own salvation with what? Fear and trembling. How can you do that? Because it is God who is at work in you. What? What? What is he doing? He's working in you to do what? To accomplish what? His will and to do his will. He's working in us. This issue of the Christian life is certainly the issue of the sovereignty of God, but inexplicably, the inexplic- how do you say that? Whatever. God puts together his sovereignty and our responsibility. How do the two work together? I have no idea, but I know they both work together. I don't know. I don't know. Ask Evan May. I don't know. <laughs> Evan knows these things. Matt Mason told him. <laughs> Keith and I are still trying to figure it out. We don't know. You are still trying to figure that out, aren't you, brother? Oh, you know it all? Next week, he's going to give us the full delineation of this whole mystery. (laughs) Through faith for what? For salvation ready to be revealed. How do you like that? Now, wait a minute. If I have been born again... Remember that verse? I'm saved, babes. I'm saved. I'm saved. I'm saved. But you see, the Bible never, ever makes that the final and full issue. It just doesn't. My salvation certainly in a time frame began at a particular point. But you see, our salvation is not an activity of time. I'm saved. It is a process of God's work. Beginning, yes, at a certain time, but it is a process. And we are very much in thin ice if we consider that we have been saved, therefore it's a done deal. It's a process. The Bible never talks about it except in process terms when you look at the total counsel of God. Oh, I know this is... You've been saved, but then it says you're being saved and you will be saved. Here, Peter talks about a process. Being born again is the beginning of a continuing work of God. And when does it end? When does this work of God end? When does it end? Never. Don't consider yourself, yes, I'm born again. Yes, I may say that. I can say that. But I'm still in the process of being saved, being transformed, being changed, being conformed to the image of Christ. Ephesians 1.14, Paul says this, the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. We're going to get the fullness of it then. So we have it now, but not all of it. So we call it now and then. Yes and no. Already, not yet. And we don't want to move the final part into the present process, which happens sometimes, where we try to take the fulfillment and the finality of what God is doing and move it into the process of what he is doing, but not in that fullness until we get there. When is it going to be revealed? When? In the last time. The last time. Titus 
waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's a salvation that has been given to us. It's a salvation that continues in us. It's a salvation that God will bring to full and magnificent fruition and display when? When Jesus comes back. When he comes back. So I'm still in the process of being saved. Of being worked on by the Holy Spirit. But at the same time, the Holy Spirit has his hands on me. The circumstances of the world has its hands on me and on you. And I had to discern the difference. And not to be overcome by the circumstances and the hands of the world. I have to know something about what God has done. These indicatives. And he's done it so I can walk in this world in a way that honors him. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says. I have fought a good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. 2 Timothy 4, 7. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. See, that day. And not only to me, but also all those who have loved his Jesus appearing. Peter's writing all this. So the walk and the daily activity of the church may be solid and sure and a display of the awesomeness and the astoundingness of this God. And he's laid the foundation here and he continues and you'll see that next time. Continues to lay this foundation. So how are we to walk? What is our walk to look like? Well, it's to be a couple of different things. And it should include certain aspects for our walk. First, we are walking along, and remember to know that we are walking along a dark and dangerous path, and we need the light of God's word to illumine our path. Listen to Proverbs chapter 4, verse 26. Watch the path of your feet, and all your ways will be established. Watch where you walk. Watch. Where you walk. Secondly, we are to know that this path that we're on, that God is with us. I've changed the scripture for that. I'm going to put down Psalm 23, 4. Yea, though I walk. No, don't go fast. Take one word at a time. Yea, though I walk. Say it again. Yea, though I walk. We're going through. We're going through. Why? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because Yahweh, our God, Jesus Christ, is with us. Because we have a living hope, the inheritance in us. And we've been kept, and we will be kept to the utter end. It's going to be revealed in its fullness on that day. So I must walk along this path. If any of you have been in some of these old uptown neighborhoods, you know, the old brick sidewalks, we used to call them bankets. 
<clears throat> and they are a combination of broken brick and stumps and, and tree whatevers and holes and whatever. How are you going to get past these things? You see, it's dark. The world is dark. It's dark. How am I going to get through it? I have to walk two ways, Peter tells you. To walk two ways. I first, I need to walk by looking down. Psalm 119, 105, thy word is a light to my path. I need to walk by looking down. What do you mean, brother? I need to walk circumspectly, carefully. I need to walk and put my feet on places that I know by God's grace and revelation through his word, by the spirit, I'm going to be okay. Oh, I'm going to trip and fall sometimes, but I'm going to get back up. I need to walk by looking down. And there are going to be difficulties and challenges to this. But I need to walk that way. But if I only walk that way, I'm going to miss the goal where I'm going. I'm going to drift off in some other neighborhood. And you may find me walking around your street looking down. You certainly don't want that to happen. But I'm not only going to look down. You see, Peter said, look down. Look at what God has done. He set a foundation for you. Born again. Living hope. Jesus Christ from the dead. You have a hope. You have a solid foundation. Look down and walk that path of the world knowing that God has done a great work for you. Remembering. <clears throat> but he also says for salvation that is ready to be revealed when? On the last time. So I also not only have to look down, I have to look up. Colossians 3, 1 says, look up. Look up to see where Jesus is. Look up. So I have to look up to see the risen Savior. He is my inheritance. He is my hope. He's coming back. He has purchased my salvation. He is the strength of God for my life. I look to him. And I walk this way. But I don't walk just looking up to him. I must walk combination of looking down circumspectly, watching my walk, evaluating my walk, asking others to look at my walk and check my walk out, being in covenant group and relationships and prayer and the word and doing all that God wants me to. So my walk as I look down is okay, but I also will be looking up. So mine is a combination of walking, looking up and looking down. You see, I look at the trials and consider them in the light of what God has done and I'm, and I'm still keeping me safe on the path. I'm looking down, but I'm doing it through the context of what God has done to keep me safe. But then as I'm looking down and then I look up to see him who is coming in the clouds of glory to receive us into his kingdom. You see, Revelation 3.11 says this. Behold, I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. 
Why will we, not can we, why will we continue steady and faithful through every trial? Why? Because of what God has done for us and because Jesus is coming soon.